Well, what's up, everybody? Hope you're doing great. Hope you're having an awesome day. Thank you so much for connecting with us and worshiping with us. Whether you're online or here in person, uh, you are part of us, part of our church and who we are. And I'll tell you what, I'm excited about this. Uh, this week, this is week two of our series that we're calling How to Study the Bible. Uh, last week, I laid out some challenges about reading scripture and getting into it. And so this week, we're going to continue to follow that up and, and even dive a little bit deeper. And I just want to uh, inform you uh, up front, it's going to be a little bit academic today. Uh, it's going to feel like uh, you know we're in class and I'm your professor and that's okay. Uh, we're going to dive deep. We're going to get a little bit intellectual, a little bit focusing on our heart as well, uh, diving into scripture. And, and really what I want to focus on today is how to interpret the Bible. Like how to interpret scripture. When you read it, what are you reading? What does it mean? What does it look like? So I love to talk about the Bible. I love to preach God's word and communicate. And so I want to have us to be able to not only just listen and hear to somebody preaching and teaching to us, but also to be able to read God's word on our own. And so we can understand and, and allow the spirit to speak to us throughout the week and, in, and including especially when he's communicating through, to us through his word. So if we could just pause for a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord to do just that as we talk this morning. So God, we glorify you, Lord. We worship you. We honor you for all that you are. Thank you for your power and your authority, Lord. Thank you for your scripture uh, that comes alive. It's incredible. God, I ask that you would communicate through me as we dive into your word. What does it mean? What does it look like? God, that you would communicate uh, to us. Would you inspire us through your word? Would you reveal your heart in just in a powerful way? and how you want us to read and have it applied to our lives. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So anytime that you're reading God's word, when you're studying the Bible, uh, there are several different things that we have got to remember and remind ourselves of. So I'm going to gloss over a few of them because they're kind of more common and aware, and we're going to dive deep as the message goes on. But a few of the things that we have to recognize right out of the gate when we're reading scripture is the background at which the scripture was written. Because there are absolutely tribes and clans and people and people groups and, and cities and nations and, and churches that the, that the word was written to. And so we've got to understand the background, we've got to understand the context and who is written to. Because you know, when you and I read a particular book in the Bible, it was written by a certain person or to possibly a certain group of people. You know, for, for example, I'm going to get into 2 Timothy in a minute and, and 1 Timothy and well here's the deal. First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy. You know, they weren't written to me or to you, but here's the deal. We can read those scriptures and, and absorb them and interpret them and see how they apply to our lives. And so when we interpret scripture, though, there are absolutely guidelines that we have to follow. So we can't just take scripture and, and read whatever we want and, and apply however we want. Like There are plenty of times where people will read certain scripture or books or letters, and they will distort the truth, because they don't understand the true meaning of the text, who it was written to, and why. And so we've got to be able to have this correct interpretation of God's word. And so just uh, so we're aware, there's some instructions uh, that Paul gave to Timothy, right? So here's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. This is what he says. He says, hey, you need to work hard so that you can present yourself to God to receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly, everybody say correctly, correctly explains the word of truth. So Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young pastor over a church in Ephesus, 
And he says, hey, you've got to work hard. You've got to show yourself as honorable before the Lord. Don't be ashamed of who you are. And in fact, when you're preaching and teaching, explain God's word correctly. Follow these guidelines. Follow the standards. And so when I re read the word correctly, that, that makes me very aware that there are people out there that are teaching it incorrectly. So Paul was saying, there's a correct way. We have to understand it. You've got to teach that. You've got to recognize that. And so people will ask me sometimes, they'll say, well, when I'm reading God's words, do I interpret it literally? Of course, we've got to interpret it literally, but we also have to interpret it how it was written in that time and in that context, because there are so many examples in scripture and, and there are so many genres of how God's word is written. So we've got to be able to discern the numerous types of genres that it's written. For example, there, there are books in the Bible that are historical, factual. That you can go back in history and you can look at them, not only in biblical history, but, but world and global and international history. You can see those things that they absolutely line up. Well, you can't read history the same way that you would read a poem. You know, there's poems and songs that are written in Scripture. There's, there's prophetic words where, where God would speak things to men to write down, and, and they were prophets that were communicating to the nation of Israel how they were deviating from God's plan. And you, can, I, you and I can read that. Well, we're not the nation of Israel. But I'll tell you what, there are absolutely things in there that we can understand and interpret and apply to our lives. And then, gosh, when you get into the Gospels, you have the four Gospels, and they're written by four different men on the account of Christ. And so people will wonder sometimes, well, why are they so different? Because they're four different men with different examples and different experiences and different perspectives. And they, so they all write this perspective of Christ and all line up perfectly together. And then even just there's an understanding of letters, and you read a letter differently, don't you, than you read a textbook. And so we've got to recognize that. And it just, it, it, it blows my mind when you understand God's word and the magnitude and the importance at which he takes care of it. Because the Bible was written over 1,600 years in time frame, in over 12 different countries, on three different continents, in three different languages, by 40 different people. So people will look at that and they go, oh my gosh, there's no way, like it can't make sense. And here's the deal, 40 different writers, how does that even work? Because there's one author. That's how it works. Because God took so much care on what was going to be his word, how he was going to communicate it, and have it all line up perfectly. And so to me, like that, I praise God. For him and who he is, that, that he took so much care that I can read, you know, his word and how he wants to communicate to me. And it's not just something that I fly through flippantly. It's extremely important. And I hope that you see the same. And there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says this. For the word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between the soul and the spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And so that verse is very penetrating to me where I can, I don't know about you, but some, there's times where I'll read God's word and I'll go, oh, 
Like, I needed that. That's harsh. That's hard. It's challenging. Because why? It's cutting deep into me. It's, it's revealing my struggles and my failures. And then there's time I'll, I'll, times I'll read scripture, you know, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I love this. This is so encouraging. This is amazing. This is exactly what I need. And so the Lord communicates through his word because it's powerful and strong. And so let me just give you a quick breakdown of the Bible in its entirety. So when you look at the Bible as a whole, you know, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the first five books are called the book, of the book of the Law. And so that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then after the Book of Law, you have the 12 books, which are 12 historical books. Total, complete history where you have Joshua all the way to Esther. And you can read them as history. They're factual and, and they're there's battles in there and cities and time frames, and so those are the historical books. Then you get into five books that are more poetical in how they're written, and so that's Job all the way through the Songs of Solomon, and so we've got to recognize them as poems and read them as such, and then you get into 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament. You have five major prophets, which is Isaiah to Daniel, and the only reason they're major is because they're actually longer. They're longer in chapters and in words and total number of words. And then you have 12 minor prophets, which is Hosea to Malachi. Did you get that? <laughs> so 12 minor prophets, Hosea to Malachi. And so they're just shorter in, in text. And, and so then after that, you have what we call 400 years of silence. So from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi, the, after that, you have 400 years where, where there's nothing that's written until you get to the Gospels, until you get to Jesus, uh, because all of the Old Testament speaks to the Messiah coming and, and, him, and him showing up on the scene. And so that's where you, know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and, and they're, them being, you know, understanding who Christ is and, and the, the acknowledgement of that. Then after the four Gospels, you have what's the act, Acts of the Apostles. And that's one book by itself. But I'll tell you what, that book has so much in it. You have the historical aspects of the formation of, of the early church. You have Paul's missionary journeys. You have all the church plants that, that he you know, put in Asia Minor and, and throughout Europe. And so you read about those. And then many times in the, book, in the Acts of the Apostles, you have where he makes reference to the letters that he writes to those churches that he had planted previously. And so Acts of the Apostles has so much uh, contextual information in it. And so understanding that Paul then writes a number of different letters and Peter writes letters as well. You have 21 different books in the New Testament that are comprised of letters. So Romans all the way to Jude. And then to wrap up scripture, you have the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic written type text. And so obviously that's talking about the prophecies of the end times and, and the return of Christ. And so the whole Bible, the whole entire Bible from beginning to end, First word to last one is all about Jesus. The whole entire thing, it's all about Christ and him crucified. And the fact that he's going to rise, or that he did rise again, and he's going to return again one day. That's what the whole book is about in its entirety. And so we have to understand, though, that each different book is written in a different context. And so you can't make the same inference with historical facts as you would other books that have more type of symbolism in them. Because what happens sometimes is people will take this liberty in their interpretation 
of Scripture. Let me just give you a simple example, one that I've heard before. I don't know if you've heard this before, but this is about Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so to me, Jesus' resurrection, it's recorded in the Gospels and, and throughout number, a number of different areas in, in Scripture itself. But Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact, okay? No one can dispute the factuality of him crucified and rising again because there were eyewitnesses that saw it and it was recorded. So when you and I know something as factual in history, there have to be certain criteria that it follows. Jesus' death and resurrection follow all of those, okay? Now, here's what happens. I say it's factual and historical and true, but somebody that looks at that, they can go, mm, you know, somebody can't actually rise from the dead and continue to live. So what really must have happened is somebody came in in the middle of the night, rolled the stone away, stole Jesus' body to make it appear as though he had risen from the dead. So, uh, you know, somebody took it, maybe one of his disciples or, or somebody, you know, that just was playing a prank. Or, and so what happens then afterwards is these assumptions or visions that Jesus then appears to his disciples and the other people that were following him. You know, those are actually visions, but they, they didn't actually take place because the people that saw him, they were grieving, you know, and so they're just they're in, in their grief and their dreams maybe at night because they were so grief-stricken by you know, their, their seemingly Lord passing away. They were filled you know, with all this grief in his passing. And so when they saw him, they didn't actually see him literally. They saw him figuratively and because they were disillusioned because of their encounters with Christ previously. So that's a, what I would call a misinterpretation of Jesus' death and resurrection. But that is actually taught and communicated regularly regarding Christ. And so that's inappropriate for me, and here's why. Because it doesn't follow the context at which the Gospels were written at all. We have to understand the background and the context to recognize them as true. So you can't just, you know, well, you actually can reject the miracles as being false. You know, you can look at a miracle and say, nope, that's actually false, it's not true. But here's the, the reality. You can't twist something to, to make it to become your own personal interpretation because it's factual. It's historical. There were eyewitnesses and it was recorded. And so one of the things that we just have to understand is the Holy Spirit, through the life of Christ, reveals the truth. And so we have to recognize that and see it. Uh, somebody's opinion or their own personal interpretation does not determine the truth. And so let me give you another uh, example of a, a lot, I mean a lot of personal interpretation, and that's the book of Revelation. You know, a, a few weeks ago we wrapped up a series on uh, about the end times and, and the return of Christ, and man, I, the book of Revelation is one of people's favorite texts to read, a scripture that people will read often, but we have to understand it's written in apocalyptic type terms. There's so much symbolism in the book of Revelation, it actually opens the door for a lot of personal interpretation because you have dragons and you have beasts and you have giant locusts. Well, if, if, if I say giant locusts that are coming to devour the land, if you interpret that literally, you say, well, there must be 
giant locusts. Like, so a locust is normally about two and a half to three inches long, but what, if a gi- what is a giant locust? It could be six inches, it could be 12 inches, it could be three feet. It could be six feet, you know, walking around on two legs. I don't know, but it says giant locusts. And so symbolically, it could mean a number of different things, couldn't it? So if, if I say literally, it's talking about giant Locust, and that, and that is absolutely possible, but when I, when I talk about the symbolism of a giant locust and a swarm of them sweeping in to bring destruction, symbolically, couldn't that mean a number of different things? A lot. And so some people will go, it must mean attack helicopters. Like when it says giant locust, obviously they're talking about attack helicopters. And you go, uh, maybe, maybe not. And so it's just like, well, wait a second. You know, so your personal interpretation may or may not be exactly what's being communicated by the Lord. And so we can't make the text say what we want it to say. And so we have to recognize that and understand that and and be able to, you know, interpret Scripture appropriately and correctly the way that God designed it to. Because that's what we have to continue to go back to is that God breathed his word. He breathed his life. He breathed scripture. It's inspired. It's inerrant. And so we must do the, the, the important work of interpreting scripture correctly. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to interpret scripture according to scripture. And so understand the context of what it's written and how it aligns and cross-references with other scripture. Because the context of, what, of who, who it's written to is extremely important. When was it written? What time era? What time frame? Do we understand what was going on culturally you know, in, in that existence when they were writing down? And then we've got to recognize how it lines up with God's word because there's nothing in scripture that's going to contradict itself. It all lines up perfectly just the way that God designed it. Now, I may give a certain passage uh, or, or a verse, uh, some type of meaning, and, and I may communicate that, right? I may say, well, this is what this mer- verse means. And I do that often. You know, as a pastor, according to God's word, I'm called to teach and, and, and show you God's word and, and to help us, you know, apply it to our life. So I may give a, an, an interpretation of what this Bible passage means in this day and age. Because if I refer to the Gospels, well, the Gospels were written somewhere in the mid-first century. Well, here we are in the 21st century, you know, 2,000 years later, so the way it applies to our lives literally might look a little bit differently than it did in the first century. But when I give a personal interpretation, when somebody says, well, that's your interpretation. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but when somebody says that, generally, what they're saying is, I don't agree with you, I don't like that, and you're wrong. Uh, so, and in this world that we live in, there is a lot of moral relativism. And so what that is, is that's, that's when people want to adopt as you know, their worldview whatever they see fit and whatever they want to. And so what happens is people go, well, that's your interpretation, That doesn't fit my life where I'm at right now, so I'm actually going to interpret it differently than what you're saying. But you can't do that. Like, you can't do that with Scripture and understanding what's communicated. I'm going to give you an example. 
uh, a simple example of a scripture verse that is actually misinterpreted often. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Maybe you have, and I'm going to rightly you know, divide scripture and, and explain how it actually lines up. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And, and we need to understand this. We need to be able to do this with scripture. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to interpret this correctly. So let's take a look. This is broken down in four different sentences. So the first is, it says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. When we read that, we go, okay, like I get it. Like this one, here we go. Are you ready? So when we read that first sentence, you know, it's obvious. Other people face the same temptations that we do. And, and in fact, it says in Scripture that Jesus himself encountered the same temptations as us, so that way we can look to him as our high priest, as it talks about in Hebrews. So important. So the temptations in your life are no different than what others will experience. Okay, we get that. That's great. So next sentence. Uh, God is faithful. So that, to me, God remains the same. He's constant. He's true. Then you look at the third sentence. It's, to me, you're going, man, like God will give us a way out, won't he? And that way out is how? It's Jesus. The way out of temptation is, is Jesus, and we have to recognize that. And so to me, when I read this, our way out is choosing righteousness. Recognize, recognize how we're tempted and, and, and the struggles that we have. And so that we can stand against that temptation and choose righteousness instead of falling into that temptation and moving towards sin. Okay? Fourth sentence. This is what it says. When you're tempted, because we all will be, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is great to me, right? Because we, we're tempted. We want to know. Like, we want to honor the Lord in our lives. But so many times we struggle with it, don't we? So to me, this is our discipline. This is our obedience to the Lord. This is self-control. You and I, when we're tempted, we have to be able to be self-controlled in our lives. And so the confusion in this verse is the word endure. Many people will, will read this verse and they go, yes, God's faithful. Yes, Jesus is the way. Yes, I need to have self-control. And when it comes to the end, he will show me that I can endure. And so what happens is people will take this verse and they'll misinterpret it and say, God won't give you more than you can handle. How many times have you said that or had somebody else say that to you when you're going through a difficulty, when you're going through a struggle? Oh, I know it's so hard, but don't worry. God won't give you more than you can handle. Here's the deal. That is not true. That is not biblical. So I think we say that to ourselves, to other people, because what we're trying to do is we take this word endure and we try to appease ourselves and believe that God actually won't allow it to become worse. So I'm enduring through this thing, through this struggle. Well, God's not going to give me more than I can handle. He's not going to make it worse. That's wrong. That is absolutely not true. God will, in fact, allow your situation to become so destitute that it's intolerable. Where you go, I can't handle it anymore. And God's going, all right, that's exactly where I want you. Why? 
Because that's why he sent Jesus. God literally wants us on our knees and at times on our face, struggling in our circumstance. Because sometimes for those of us that are a little bit stubborn, a little bit, you know, determined, you know, we try and justify it. We're hard-headed and, and like, we, like we will fight and fight and fight and God will take us to our face in the carpet, in the ground, where all's were like, like bloodied and dirty and we're just spent. We tried on our own. We tried our own ways. And we got to this point where we finally realized we can't do it. And God's going, yes, that's exactly right. I'm sorry you have so many scabs and band-aids now, but that's your choice. I just wanted you to, to recognize that you need me more. I got, I got, can't you just see God saying that as a loving father, he will allow us to reach a place of desperation so that we cry out to him and him alone. Because that's, that's what he longs for. So endure is not easy. Endure actually means persevering through the struggle. Now, if you look at these verses and, and you look at your circumstance, if your circumstance is as a result of your sinfulness, okay, so we face the temptation, we fall into temptation and experience sin, then, right, uh, we can have forgiveness, we turn from our wicked ways and get back connected with the Lord. But... God will absolutely use those circumstances, even our sinfulness, to drive us towards righteousness and greater dependency upon him. And so, you know, when you look at that verse and you've heard, maybe you've heard somebody say that before, like, God won't make it harder than you can handle. Like, that's just, I just tell you, you know, we have some misguided and incorrect interpretations of, of God's word in his scripture that are wrong. And sometimes, you know, we'll make it, uh, you know, apply to our lives what makes us feel good. It might be our upbringing. You maybe had a grandparent or a parent who, who, who taught you a certain verse or scripture and what it meant, and they actually were wrong. Maybe even a pastor or a previous, you know, teacher or something that, that communicated God's word and, and just their interpretation wasn't, wasn't correct according to God's word. And so we have to recognize that. And so, it, like, we can't, you know, just have that in our life to appease ourselves and our own personal morals. Our morals should be biblical and founded on God's word. And so what I want to do, instead of just talking about all this stuff, I want to give you five. I want to give you five rules to interpret scripture. And so here's the first one. Uh, I want you to read the Bible the way you would read any other book. Now, I'm not speaking blasphemy. I, you, did you hear me say earlier that God's word is inerrant and it's spoken from him and God breathed and powerful? Did you hear me say that? Yes, you did. So you can't take this point and go, well, he's, he doesn't believe the Bible is true. No, actually, I do believe it's true. But I want you to read it like any other book. Why? Because there's nouns, there's pronouns, there's conjunctions, there's verbs in there. And so we have to understand grammar on how things are written. So read it like you would a book. And understand the meaning behind those. Uh, and, and so the second thing that I want to share with you is as you're reading scripture, put yourself in the figure's shoes. Put yourself in the story. I love to do this. This is one of my most favorite things to do. So what if you and I were to enter into the reality of the text and what it is and what it means? I mean, to, like when we read Genesis... There's so many incredible leadership principles in, in the story of God and how he established you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes. There's so much in there. Well, what if you and I put ourselves in Joseph's shoes when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers? 
If you were Joseph and you were 17, how would you feel? How would, you, how would that experience affect you in your life? And then continue to read Joseph's story as one whose his own brothers had sold him into slavery. So we put ourselves in that character's shoes so we can relate. And then you read and understand the context of the scripture, and then you say, now what does this mean in my life? Who have I been betrayed by? How can I then carry this out in my life now? So put yourself in their shoes. The third thing is to find the passages you don't like. And just FYI, I don't like this point. Uh, it's like, so find the ones that you don't like. When you read a passage in text and you go, I don't like that, exactly, you are in the right spot. So when you read something and you go, oh, this is heavy, this is hard, I need you to ask yourself or ask the Lord, say, God, what are you trying to show me? Because I don't like this. And so what happens so many times is we're reading through Scripture with our eyes on how we want it to apply to our life, but I want to challenge you to actually read Scripture through God's eyes in what he's trying to show us. Because we'll refer to the Bible as God's playbook and God's design, and, but are you reading the Scripture text through his perspective for us instead of trying to adopt it as our own? So we need to realize what God had designed for us uh, is often <laughs> very different than what we want in our lives. And I'm going to give you a prime example for me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Don't be selfish. I hate it already. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, but I do. Be humble. I'd rather not. Think of others as better, better than yourselves. Nah. Like, I, when I read this, I hate this. This verse alone, I'm going, nah, no thanks. Like, let's go on to, chat. Let's go on to verse 4. So to me, I'm going, oh, like I grieve. This twists me up on the inside. Like, and that's exactly what scriptures do. It, it peels us back. It cuts down so deep to our motives and intentions, even between the joints and the marrow, and exposes who we truly are. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel extremely vulnerable. But that's exactly what God wants to do, is to draw us nearer to him. And so when you read those verses you, and you say, I don't like that, you probably need to settle there for a minute. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you and speak over you what he wants to show you. The fourth thing, this one might be the most important of the five, it's that we interpret scripture with scripture. And so if there's a verse that's communicating a biblical truth, you will also find other supporting verses that are communicating that same thing. Okay? So you find something, you're like, wow, that's great. There will be other texts, whether Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter, that they bring in alignment that biblical truth. I'm going to give you a fantastic example. Are you ready? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. What does that mean? If we're to interpret scripture with scripture, and I say, Women will be saved through childbearing. You go, what does that mean? So when I, when I read that, I go, are there two ways to be saved? If you're a man, you have Jesus, which is awesome. If you're a woman and you're not a mom, you're out of luck. Isn't that what this is saying? If you read this and you go, women are to be saved through childbearing, you go, well, what about the women who aren't, don't have kids? 
Do they not get saved? Are there two ways to get saved? No. Okay, so that's the, a way that somebody could misinterpret Scripture. So what we do is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let me explain this to you, right? This is the interpretation of that verse. Paul, the writer of 1 Timothy, is writing to Timothy as a young pastor, telling him certain things that he's got to understand and recognize. But what Paul is doing is Paul is making reference to the fact of the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. He's talking about Adam and Eve. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, what happened? God said, as a result of your sin, men, you will have to work hard. You will labor. By the sweat of your brow, you will work the, the ground and, and, and to provide for your family. And then he also said, women, as a result of this, you will experience pain in childbirth. Okay? I'm sorry. Like, for all you ladies, like, birthing is amazing and it's torturous. I get it. And, and, and here's the other piece about the childbearing. The fact and reality about the prophetic aspect that the Messiah will be birthed by a woman. So when you read, hey, women will be saved through childbearing, you go, what? And so that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about, you know, when, when God was speaking to Satan in Genesis 3.15, here's what it says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis chapter 3, the prophecy that Jesus will be born by a woman. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the one that will strike the enemy down and Jesus takes authority over Satan once and for all. So how will women be saved through childbearing? Because of Jesus, just the same way as men. Okay, that, that's what that means. So we've got to take scripture and apply it with scripture. Nowhere, nowhere else does it give any other option for salvation or any other means other than Christ and him crucified. So if you take those ver that verse in Timothy and you flip it upside down, you would be wrong because you didn't cross-reference it and understand the interpretation of what that verse actually means. I hope that makes sense, and we've got to do this through all Scripture that we don't quite understand. So when you read something, you go, what does that mean? Use other Scripture to understand that particular one. The fifth one is the interpretation of the Spirit must line up with Scripture. So many people will go, well... You know, I feel like God is telling me this. You know, in this verse, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me this. And, and so the question that you have to ask when you feel the direction of the Lord and you think that's him, because let's be honest, sometimes we're not really sure. So if we go, man, I think like God is trying to show me something, I would then say to you the way that we evaluate that to interpret correctly is to say, does this line up with Scripture? Holy Spirit, I feel like you're trying to tell me this. But does it line up in accordance with your word? Because so many times people will go, God told me this thing. And God absolutely does speak through his Holy Spirit. But when somebody is using God's word and claiming it to be an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have to be very careful with that. Because what are they talking about? Why are they communicating that? Because if somebody says, well, God told me, and then they lay out this whole list of things that are filled with selfish ambition, uh, manipulation, controlling other people, 
that's probably not the Lord. You know, that, that's actually us when we put words in God's mouth and we, we take it on as ourself, for ourselves and our lives. And in fact, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's actually a way that the enemy will come in and communicate to us that we're not coming in alignment with Scripture with. And so the meaning of Scripture can be understood. So for those of you that, that you go, man, I try and read it, but I just don't get it. I want to encourage you. That means you've got to dive in a little bit deeper. You got you to peel back some layers. You got to understand the context. You got to study it a little bit more. Break it down a little bit. So there may be multiple applications to a particular verse in our lives and, 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 and according to where we are in our life. You know, I'm, I'm you know, a man, I have three sons, and I'm married. Well, if you, you could be a single you know, college student and you're a female. Well, we could read the same verse. I find it how it applies to my life right now as a pastor, husband, father, and you recognize how it applies to your life as a young college student you know, moving towards the, the work, workforce and marketplace. So, but we can read the same verse, and God speaks. God communicates, and it can be understood how it applies to our life. And I don't know if you've done this, but I have read, you know, the, the Bible multiple times, and, but I, I could read certain verses a hundred times, and God will speak something different each time based on what I'm going through in that time and how he's trying to stretch me and, and encourage me and break me down and build me up. And each time, he could speak something different. And so how we study scripture how we interpret scripture, how it applies to our life are all vitally important. And we've got to continue to dive into that. Now for us here at Grace Church, we, we constantly are encouraging you to use the SOAP Bible study method. We, you know, we give this out, it's online, gracechurch.life. Uh, you, know, you can click on the, you know, the, the menu there and you can find the SOAP guide and you read along with us. You take it, it gives the definition of what SOAP means and how to do it. So the, the scripture, the observation, the application for your life and how we can pray. And so I want to encourage you to do that if you're not doing that yet. But then I do want to say, sometimes people will come to me and they'll, they'll go, Pastor Aaron, what should I read first? The Bible's a big book. There's lots of things. Old t- what, what should I read first? And so here's what, here's what I would say to you. If, if you're not going to do this, which is fine, well, I would encourage you to, but if, if you go, well, I, I've never read the Bible before. Or I want to get into it again. What do I read first? I would say read the Gospel of John. So you have Old Testament, New Testament. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's the fourth of the Gospels. And here's why I would say the Gospel of John. Because in Scripture, we can read and have an understanding that John was actually the closest to Jesus of all the 12 disciples. So the way I describe it is John, the author of the Gospel of John, was basically Jesus' best friend. They were tight, very close. So when John writes his account of his Savior, he's writing from a place of friendship and extreme intimacy and closeness. And that's astounding. Like, that just is so revealing. So read the Gospel of John first from the eyes of Jesus' best friend and become that. The second book I would, I would encourage you to read is the one right after the Gospel of John. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It talks about the formation of the early church. It talks about Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, missionary journeys, incredible, incredible text. So much information in there. And then after that is the book of Romans. And that basically is Theology 101. 
So John, Acts, Romans, boom, boom, boom. Those three right in a row are, are where, you, where you should start. If you, if you haven't read those, that's where we've got to begin and understand. I hope this makes sense. Uh, class is over. I want to pray for you uh, before you dismiss. And, and, but I, please understand, like, our heart in doing this series, our heart in teaching this uh, is to, so that we could fall in love with the Lord even more in his word and what he wants to communicate. So let me pray a blessing over us as we close this service. Lord God, we come before you. And Father, we love you. Lord, we delight in you. We honor you. Thank you so much for how you communicate. Lord, you communicate to us through, through your spoken word, through your scripture, through a text. Uh, Lord, through your, the verses that you lay out for us. And Father, I just thank you so much for the inspired word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that it would become like food. Uh, Lord, that we wouldn't be, as an infant, just reliant upon milk and, and, and small increments of food. But Lord, that you would bring us to this place of feasting. Feasting on your word. Feasting on, on, on what you have for us. Feasting and absorbing into our lives what you want to communicate to us through your scripture. And so, God, I thank you so much. Lord, and I want to pray, just, Lord, I speak this out just as, as an encouragement, even just uh, for, for those of us that are seeking wisdom, seeking guidance, seeking direction. Uh, Lord, I know that your word gives us that. And so, Father, as, as we read your text today and tomorrow and throughout this week, those of us that have major decisions, would you show us? God, we're trying to choose A, B, or C, and you have a design and a plan for us. And so would you reveal through your word what it is you have for us, that it would just light up like the morning sky and become so obvious to us as we seek your face, seek your direction, and seek your hand. Lord, we love you so much, and we honor you. Thank you, and we just bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.